You're listening to the City Lights Church Podcast with Pastor Jesse Miller. So, anyway, you are a child. <laughs> you are a child. Um, so, thinking about my own kids, uh, it's funny when you're a kid, you just, like, have such boldness, right? Like, you just, like, know that your parents are good. Like, they, everything you want, just like my, my daughter this morning, whatever she wants, she gets. I think it's funny that Mike and I didn't plan on telling those stories. It was just kind of, like, in our heart right before we got up to share and both of them were about our kids, and both of them are about like their fathers doing stuff for them, right? Um, and so, like these young babies, just know that their parents will do whatever <laughs> like, because they're babies, and the parents do whatever for them. It's the history that they have. It's what they know. It's what they expect. Um, but then there comes this age where you just start to, like, have you, how many parents are there, and you remember the age where your kid starts to get these irrational fears? You know what I'm talking about? Like for our girls, it was so frustrating. Like we would literally put them in their car seats and go to put something in the trunk, like in a span of 10 seconds. And Haley was losing her mind, like screaming, tears, shaking, like, like full on. We had just like abandoned our child in a car for six months. Like that's what she acted like. Right. And we were putting something in the trunk. Or we could literally be, uh, some of you guys might remember this, in the church parking lot, we put our kids in. We're standing there by the door, seeing them through the window, talking to somebody, and they're losing their mind. Like we just lock them away permanently. Like there comes this age where all of a sudden you start to notice irrational fears that don't make any sense. And there's not really a reason for it. It's just it happens, right? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Because some of you are looking at me like I'm confusing. Um, but there comes this age where we just start to develop these fears. And then what happens out of that is there becomes a process of like parents, how much of your parenting is discussing and, and rationalizing and getting beyond fears with your kids. We took our girls to Disney World the other year and like Haley, once again, lost her mind over Splash Mountain, like refusing to get on this. And I'm like, uh, I got us fast passes. We're getting on this. Um, <laughs> This is going to happen, or you and I are going back to the hotel. Like, it, it happened, and now she loves the ride, right? But we had to get beyond the irrational fears. Like, this is a simple, it's Disney World. There's not a lot of thrilling, like, death-defying things here. It's, you know, there's Mickey Mouse, you know? This is, this is literally a cupcake operation here. It's, it's simple. And, like, we have to get beyond irrational fears. Your parents know that. Um, somewhere... In our lives, we create these fears that we, we kind of let rule, rule our lives. Make sense? Um, like we, we just flew, flew to, uh, to uh, Nevada. And her dad, the last two months, he, he, her dad has never flown a plane in his life. He won't get on a boat. He doesn't do elevators. And he, do, he doesn't like elevators, but he'll do them occasionally. Doesn't do boats, doesn't do planes, just cars. And he'll call, he called us. How many times did he call you? Did you see the news? That lady got sucked out a window of a plane. I'm just saying, make sure Jesse gets the window seat, not you. Like, like, thanks, Tim. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> like, it's completely irrational. Like, more people will die in car accidents than they do in planes. But yet, he's like, nah, planes are dangerous. It's like, it's terrible. It's bad. Like, and they can't wait for us to land and tell them, hey, we survived this you know, we, we rolled the dice and took a wild chance and we survived, you know. Um, but people create their own irrational fears. And if you're honest, you have them as well. 
Like we all have these little things that we just don't like, uh, and we, we don't know why. And this morning I want to talk to you about being a child of God and how God is a good father and identifying some of our own irrational, irrational fears and thought process that we have toward him. I, I think typically when we create these fears, it's either because of a situation that we encountered or a story where we heard. Like, you, you create this mindset because of a story you heard about something bad happening somewhere else, and you assume that it will happen to you, right? And we have to get beyond these responding to bad situations with pulling in that as our identity, living in this crippled, defeated mentality, these irrational fears. Our Father is good, right? We respond to bad situations, and we create this image of a bad father or an unloving God. And I want to tell you this morning that the bad situations you've heard about or even experienced have nothing to do with the goodness of God. God is good, and he's loving. And even no matter what happens, even if I face bad things and disappointments or death or calamity or sword or spear or any of those things, what separates me from the love of God? God is still good, and I'm still his child, right? It doesn't matter what happens to this thing because the truth is you and I are spiritual more than we are physical as well. And when we remember that we are spiritual eternal beings in Christ, that we are seated in heavenly places with him, the physical doesn't really give us any place for solid fear. We recognize it's temporal. Um, We are both physical and spiritual. This is a side story. This is not my actual message this morning. But we are both physical and spiritual people. And neither one of them is bad. Right? We, but we are more spiritual than we are physical. Um, it doesn't make the physical bad. Let, let me give you an example. So um, if I have a goblet here, right, or a cup, some kind of cup, and it's holding something, what matters? Does the cup matter or does what's inside matter the most? Huh? What's inside matters the most. You could have the most beautiful cup, but if it's full of poison, it's still terrible, right? If that ugly, ugly cup is full of life-giving water when you need something to drink, you don't worry about that cup. You're, I mean, you're willing to drink out of a pond to get the what, what you need, right? And this morning, we have to re- remember that we have realized we're a child of God, and we know that God's good, and all these things that, we, that cause fear and anxiety are temporal, that, that they don't reflect on his eternal goodness, and I remember that I am eternally in him, then why am I living a life bound by fears when they don't really matter long-term? In the eternal scale. What is life? It's but a vapor, right? And so I have to remind myself that these little things don't give ground for irrational fears to take over me and to dictate how I live my life. What has to dictate my life is knowing that I am his, that I am spiritual more than I am physical, and that he is always good. He's eternally good. And I know that he's good. And that impacts my physical reality as well. That helps me to see the kingdom of God. Because I think then, like he is my good father. Make sense? I want you to go to Matthew chapter, 20, or chapter 17, if you would. Um, I'm going to start in 17 because I think it gives us a little context to our main passage this morning. Um, and I think it's a hilarious story when you look at it. Like, I love when the Bible is funny. I just I like good humor. Um, I mean, I referenced Big Daddy this morning, which is probably the last good Adam Sandler movie. Um, some of you guys are like, what? <laughs> so, um, 
I like when the Bible's funny. And if you look at it and you see the context, it's, there's some funny things in the story. And it'll give us a little bit more to look at. So Matthew chapter 17, starting in verse 24. Um, if you don't have a Bible, the one in the pew in front of yours, you can keep. We want you to have that. But verse 24. When they came, came to Capernaum, the collector of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From, the sons, from their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to look, give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Okay, let me explain this story and why it's hilarious. Um, so you guys like, okay, there's a fish in the, with a coin in its mouth. That's hilarious. Yeah, that's not the funny part yet. Um, so they're with the disciples, Jesus with the disciples, and a tax collector comes up and says, hey, don't you guys pay the, the, the two drachma tax? Doesn't your teacher believe in that? And Peter's like, uh, yeah, of course we do. And, and so he's like, hey, Jesus, do we do this? What do we, what do, we do? Jesus is like, here's, here's what you do. Whenever you, you tax, who do you tax? Do you tax a king? Does he tax his kids? Or does he tax other people's kids? And Peter's like, other people's. He's like, exactly, so their sons are free. The two drachma tax, let me explain, was a tax for the temple. Which is the temple? The house of God, right? It's the king's house. The king of everything. It's his house. And Jesus says, hey, Peter, um, do sons pay for the king's house? No. Other people do. <laughs> Other people pay for the king's realm. That's, they, they're the ones who pay the taxes, not us. Um, but to avoid controversy, we'll pay the tax. Peter, Jesus says to them, hey, it, we don't have to because you and I are sons of God and it's his house. We don't pay here, right? The, another funny thing is who's writing this story? Matthew. What was Matthew? Matthew's a tax collector. He thinks this story's hilarious. That's why I wrote it down. He's like, let's talk about taxes for a minute. And everybody else is like, no, Matthew, not taxes again. He's like, this is a funny one. This is a good one, guys. It's the, it's the accountant who thinks everything. Anyway, sorry. Um, so they pay the, Jesus says, okay, to avoid uh, any kind of opposition, we'll pay the tax. So go get a fish and open its mouth and you'll find the shekel. Two drachma is exactly half of a shekel. Each person who was over the age of 20 has to pay their tax for the temple. So if you're older than 20, you pay half a shekel or two drachma. Jesus says to avoid any kind of, the actual word is scandalizo, scandalizo. So to avoid any kind of scandal here, let's not talk about us being sons of the Father, sons who owns the temple, and we are beyond paying taxes. Let's not even talk about that. Let's just go get the fish, and he'll pay the taxes for us. And so how much do they pay? Just curious. Okay, so one shekel, and if two drachma is half a shekel, how many are they paying for? So you guys, okay, two people. So two people, they're paying for two people. How many disciples are there? There's 12, right? Jesus is like, I'm not trying to create a controversy, so we'll pay for who we have to pay for, me and you, Peter. We'll pay for us. When we picture the disciples, what do we think? A bunch of grown men with beards, right? That's why all the paintings have them. Like, some of the guys are bald, and they got these big beards. Some of them have cool coats, and, like, they're all, like, men. The truth is, Jesus' disciples were probably, they were all under the age of 30, and most of them were probably in their late teens, early 20s. Jesus pays for 
two, two young men, himself and Peter, nobody else. He's like, we're, no, we're not going to avoid, we're going to avoid scandal and we'll pay, even though we don't have to pay. Why? Because we're God's children, right? The disciples, I first want you to understand that the disciples are a bunch of young guys. Like, in that culture, you could get married at 14 years old. In that culture, you finished schooling and you became a man at 13 years old, right? So these are men who weren't in their own careers, but they were still doing their father's business, like fishermen, right? They were still fishermen for their dads. So they weren't old enough to have their own business, not young enough to be in school, and they were definitely not older than a rabbi. You wouldn't serve a rabbi who's older than you, like, or younger than you. It just didn't make any sense. You would serve somebody older, and Jesus was 30 when he became their rabbi. So they, they, they're a bunch of young guys, probably in their teenage years, who look at this guy who's 30, and Jesus says, hey, I'm a rabbi, come do what I do. And they're like, no other rabbi said that to us before. Like, we, we failed the rabbi test before. Like, literally, if you were 12, you'd take these tests, and you would hope that a rabbi would say, hey, you can be like me. And if he said no, you'd go do whatever your dad did. That's who this group was. They're a bunch of, like, adolescents, basically. They're a bunch of young guys who don't know a whole lot. And they're following Jesus. Jesus pays the taxes. Like, hey, you're children of God. We don't really have to pay taxes. We'll get this fish. We'll do it. Let's move on. You guys see the story, okay? So the very next thing, at that time, this is chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child. He put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is the way that I imagine the story. I'm not saying it's fact. This is just how I see it. This is the Jesse Miller version, okay? So the JMV, if you're looking for a Bible at the bookstore. They're out in public. A tax collector says, hey, you guys need to pay taxes. And Jesus is like, all right, we'll do this. We'll pay for two. And they get away, and I'm assuming it's Peter, the oldest, is like, so uh, Jesus, which one of us is not a child? Which one of us is the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus looks at him and goes, bring that little kid over here. Who's that little kid? Yeah, he's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I just kind of picture this like, let me respond to your arrogance in this situation by pointing out that the kingdom of God is only seen with eyes that recognize we have a father and we are still children. We are his. We are not on some kind of scale of greatness that we are adults now because we pay our taxes. Who pays your taxes here, Peter? The father paid your taxes. I love that Peter didn't pay his own. Jesus paid his own through a miracle. That's the father that we have. And Jesus says the kingdom of God, the, o- the only ones who will see the kingdom, the ones who the kingdom belongs to, is people who are like this little child, humble, not prideful, not arrogant. What does that mean for us? Jesus, Jesus says what about the kingdom when he comes? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. I want you to understand, Jesus isn't telling them, hey, if you walk around super humble, that when you die, then you'll go and sit in clouds in heaven. Jesus says if you want to see the kingdom right now as a reality, you have to understand your position as a child. You have to understand that the Father is good, the Father pays your taxes, the Father knows who you are, and he's called you his son. And when you understand that, that puts you in a right perspective to be a carrier of the kingdom. That means you have the mindset of a child who knows what's his. 
Just like we talked about with Mike. Mike, Mikey, little Mikey knew those eggs were his. They're coming. They're my eggs. My dad's making me eggs. Grace knew that that song's her song. Every time she gets in that bucket seat in the back, back of my car, she says, Jesus, that's my song. You give that to me. What if we knew that it wasn't out of a position of age or experience or some kind of expertise or victory where we say, hey, whose seat do we have in the kingdom? What if we knew, hey, it's because I depend on a good father to give me every good thing that I can see the kingdom of God right now in my life? What if that was our perspective? So the next time you need something healed, the next time you need a miracle, the next time you need something set free, you say, it's not because of anything I've done. I'm not the oldest. I'm not the most experienced. I'm not the most righteous. I'm not the best of the best of the best, but I am a child of God. And so, Father, I ask for your kingdom to be revealed. What if that was our perspective? What if it wasn't out of pride, but it was out of position in him? Humble. Jesus calls a little one to him and said, Unless you turn, that means you rethink, you repent, you switch the way you think. Unless you have a mentality like this, you will never experience the kingdom of heaven. We have to be people who recognize our positions as sons and daughters. Proverbs says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your path straight. How many of you guys have heard that verse before? It's something that goes on all these mugs and everything. It's like we like to put it on our day-by-day calendars to encourage us. But what does that mean? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. That means you cannot think of yourself as some mature, enlightened person who's got better plans for yourself than he does. It says, I give you all my trust. All my heart is yours. And I don't lean. I don't depend on my own logic. I don't depend on my own rationalization. I don't depend on my own experience. What I depend is on you being a good father. I put my whole heart into you and I trust you and you make my path straight. Jesse Miller cannot make his own path straight. But trusting the wisdom of the father makes my path straight. There are so many situations where I'm frustrated, angry, disappointed, whatever, and I have to say, Jesse, you, you, you can't define your own terms. God knows what he's doing. God knows his plans for me, and they are good. So stop trusting in myself, right? Like, you guys, you guys with me? You guys walking through something where you're trying to figure out wisdom, and you create your own, like, hey, this is how it's going to work out, and then, like, you get a phone call, and you're like, yeah, it didn't work out that way. Something else happened. I am so thankful for the many, many times that God has hijacked my plans. So thankful that constantly he reminds me that I'm a child. I don't have a clue yet. Let's just be honest. Kids do not know what's best for them. Like, if it was up to Faith Miller, my daughter, seven years old, she would eat mac and cheese every day of her life. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, mac and cheese. Nothing else. That does not make a healthy life, right? Or we'd be at Chuck E. Cheese all the time. Like every night, Chuck E. Cheese. Playing the arcade, eating terrible pizza. Like just terrible. My, my kids do not know what's best for them. Like my, my daughters know that when they come home, they're probably hungry and they want a snack, right? And they know like, okay, we're going to eat dinner in like an hour, so grab a healthy snack. When I'm outside in a different room and I come back in and they got the bag of Doritos out, like, that's Haley making her own decision what's best for her. And she just ate half the bag of Doritos. I'm like, put the Doritos away and grab an apple. 
We're going to eat dinner in a few minutes, right? Like, kids don't know what's best for them all the time. Like, not, I'm not saying that they don't have value. I'm not saying they don't have wisdom, because the truth is, out of the mouth of babes comes revelation so often, right? But there's this parental rule that God has given each, like, every parent that he is the ultimate model for. He says, Jesse, you, you're begging for mac and cheese on a daily basis, and I'm trying to give you steak and mashed potatoes and, and whatever your favorite vegetable is. Will doesn't have a favorite vegetable. Um, whatever yours is, fill in the blank. Like, God, God is trying to make us healthy people and grow us, and meanwhile, we're sabotaging our own, our own destiny because we think we know it's best. When we understand that we have to have the mind of a child to fully see the kingdom of God in front of us right now, then it removes pride, it removes arrogance, and gives us a perspective of being his beloved sons and daughters. Like, that's the place to live out of. Go to Galatians chapter 3. You guys still with me this morning? Sometimes I need you to preach with me, so every once in a while it'll be... You can let me know that you're hearing this. Or let me, Can I explain something before we get into the, me- the rest of this message real quick? Um, I'm a guy who likes feedback, but not just because I like, I'm like, like, I need encouragement. I like groups that give encouragement because, let me say this, when you say like amen or yes or something like that in the pew, it tells the person beside you who's struggling with what I'm saying whether or not this is a reality. It adds an amen. That's why we say amen. You know that? When we pray a prayer and we say amen, it's the body of Christ coming together saying, let this be so. So whenever I like <clears throat> want a little feedback or interaction, it's not because I'm bored or lonely up here or because I'm insecure. I think the person beside you might want to know, hey, maybe there's a corporate understanding of what's being said with the word of God saying. So just, does that make sense? I'm just trying to give you a little bit of my personal perspective, why why I want a little engagement. I want you to preach with me sometimes. So, All right, Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God, through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew or Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is an owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. For you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through Christ. What I want you to see here is there was a time when we were under the guardianship of the law. That we were, like, we had rules, we had restrictions, we had boundaries. It was a guardianship. 
And here Paul says to us, there was a time when you were under this and you weren't fully getting, giving the, getting, getting the inheritance of the kingdom of the Father. But now when the fullness of time has come and Christ has come, he has given us a spirit inside of us that cries, Abba, Father, so we are no longer slaves. We're no longer under a guardianship. We're no longer in some bad foster care system that makes our lives confusing and a wreck. We are sons and heirs with Christ. That's our current reality. That we are co-heirs. We're not waiting anymore. You are now sons. You're not under management and somehow the inheritance of the Father is way over there and one day, someday off in the distance when we all get to yonder and we're on clouds, then we'll get our inheritance. Paul says, no, now, now the fullness of time has come. You're no longer slaves. You're sons. It's the reality of who you are now. You're not under some kind of weird foster care system anymore called the law. You're under grace. So you have all the rights of the Father. You have all the rights of Christ Jesus. We are co-heirs with Christ. How many can look at the Scripture and say Jesus had a lot of rights? He did what he saw the Father do. They became reality that he experienced. That's the same thing for you and I. When we know that we're sons, not in this limited, childlike, like we can't come into the fullness of age yet. The fullness of age has happened because of what Christ did. We have access to what is ours. So when you pray for your head, God does something. That's the kingdom being seen with eyes of faith. I trust you, Jesus. I trust you. You're the the older brother. We are co-heirs together in this. It's when you're walking through difficulty that you cry out, Father, Abba, Father, and you receive the kingdom right now. You have full access. You have full inheritance right now. One of the most tragic parts of the story of the two, we call the prodigal son, but it's really a story of two sons. One of the most tragic parts of that story is that that young son thought that he had nothing and that the father owed him everything. So he said, Father, die to me. Give me what you have. What's the father say to the older brother? All that I have has been yours. It's, it's, already, it's already yours. You want a cow? We'll kill a cow. You want a ring? We'll, we'll do whatever. I love that. Like we, when we know that we're sons of a good father, we already have access to what's ours. Paul tells us here in this passage that we now have a spirit inside of us crying, Abba, Father. You're not under some kind of weird management. You have permanent rights now to the family of God because we've been adopted as his. Permanent. Adoption is like a, it's like sealed. It's like you're mine. You have rights to this family. You get my last name. You get everything that's mine. It's all yours, right? Like when I go to my parents' house, I don't ask my dad, hey, can I get some water? Hey, can I make a sandwich? I don't do that anymore. Like, my, why? Because my parents are like, yeah, it's, I bought it for you. I knew you were coming. Eat. <laughs> like My dad even jokes. He's like, whenever you're not here, mom buys nothing for us. Whenever you're here... <laughs> She stocks the fridge. Like, I know when I go there, there's going to be Turkey Hill Diet green tea and something else for me to eat. Like, I just know it. Like, it's because they know that my son's coming. I put stuff in, in the fridge for him. That's what we do, right? That, that's what it means to be a son of God. Like, he's got stuff for you. Do you see that? Do you see that? It's not about pride. It's not about position. It's about knowing who you are in him. You have permanent rights. 
We've been talking in the series and things that we have to understand to know our identity. We have to know he is good. We have to know he is eternal. We have to know that he is love. He doesn't have love. He is love. We have to know that he fears nothing because there's nothing that he can't beat. There's nothing out of his control. He fears nothing. We have to know that you've always been on his mind. From the foundations of the earth, he thought of you. You were the thought in his mind before the cross happened. You are a new creation. Your, your past no longer defines you. It's not your identity. That's who, it's not who you are. The only, only his words over you are your identity. When you know that, that becomes your reality. And he looks at you and he says, you're my son, you're my daughter. That's your reality. That's your identity. You are not the job that you do. You are not your role as a father, a mother, a daughter, a son, an aunt, an uncle. You are not a boss, an employee. You are not a worker for a church. You are not uh, a worker for the state. That's not your identity. What your identity is, you are a beloved son and daughter of God. And that's the only eternal identity you ever carry. He is good and he has deep, deep love for you. He has adopted you as sons and daughters. You are his child. That's who you'll be throughout eternity. That's your identity. So I ask, why would we not fully embrace this reality? Don't don't hesitate on this. Don't throw off this reality of being a son. I think we, we like to use the term child of God, but we really have we have there's a lot more connotations when we recognize that we're a son of God or a daughter of God. When we fully embrace that, and the enemy does not want you to fully embrace that, because it's a mystery he doesn't understand. Even the angels don't understand this. Scripture tells us the angels are so confused by you. Wait, wait, so, so God, we're perfect angels. <laughs> like, we are literally the perfect angel. And they are fallen human, and you have poured out your love for them, saved them through the mystery of grace, called them to be your own people, and then given them, people, talking about us, higher positions than angels. That's amazing. That's mind-blowing. And the enemy looks at you as a son and daughter and goes, I don't get it. I don't get it. And so what he wants to do is he wants you to believe that you're something else. That you're not fully his. That you're partly his. Or you're, that, you're, that you're kind of a failed version of a son or daughter. You're that, you're that ugly one. The one that nobody really, God made you, but doesn't really like you that much. Like, that's garbage. That's garbage. Get that out of your mind. Like The enemy doesn't want you to pull in your identity as a son or a daughter of him. He doesn't want you to know that. Like He literally pays your taxes. Like That's what he did here in Matthew. He paid their taxes. God pays my taxes. Your job, he gave you. Your family, he gave you. Good, bad, ugly, confusing, whatever. He says everything, I, everything good that you have is from me. So like, why would you think you're not my son or daughter? Like, I am Jehovah Jireh, your provider. I give you what you need. He, like, teaches you all that you need to know, whether that's tying your shoes or doing a good job or running the race of faith. He teaches you everything you need to know. Like, that's who he is. He's a good father. I want to I ask you, do you know the sense of freedom that comes from knowing that you don't have to protect yourself anymore because you're his. Like, I don't have to feel alone. I don't have to feel like I'm fighting this battle on my own. You guys still with me this morning? 
Like there's a sense of freedom when you like realize, hey, I was once on my own. I was once an orphan, but now he says he, that I'm his. Do you know the feeling when you know that you didn't belong anywhere else, but he looks at you and says, you belong to me. You're my son, my daughter. Maybe you can't picture this, and I, and I hope that this, I, we have a video that I found, and some of you might need to get a tissue ready, but I hope this paints a little bit of a picture of what adoption by the Father looks like. You were once on your own, alienated and hostile, Scripture says, but now you're in me. Now you're my son and daughter. Let's watch this video. Every word that he said to her was the gospel. We've had some rough patches in the past, but that ain't, that ain't anything. I see you're good at this, you're good at that, you're good at this. This is who you are. And, and even though you can go somewhere else in a few months, I want this to be permanent. You're my daughter. I'm adopting you. Some of you might not have had that from a real parent. Some of you might not experience that in, in the physical like she is, but the Father has said that from day one. He spoke over her, her destiny. The Father knew you before the world was created. Isn't that good? You were by yourself, what felt like by yourself and isolated alone, but I don't want that anymore. The Father looks at us. That's why he sent his son. That's why he gave us this text so that we could, and the, that's why he put the Holy Spirit inside of us so that we know we're adopted. I'm a son of the king. You're a daughter. You're a son. He's fully adopted you. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 14, it says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, and by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I want to unpack that just for a second as we close. Worship team, come forward. If you guys need tissues later, they're along the windows in the front pew. I want you to feel, I do want you to feel this. I want you to feel this morning the reality of who you are. The verse says, you do not receive a spirit of slavery to what? To fall back into fear. One of the constant jobs of, of me as a parent is to look at my daughter and say, you don't need to fear that. You don't need to fear that thing. You don't need to fear being alone in the car. You don't need to fear oh, this ride. I would not do anything that would ever hurt you. I would not let you stumble. I would not do anything to destroy you. I will do everything to protect you. The spirit of adoption reminds us we have nothing to fear, and the spirit of slavery causes fear in our hearts. Just this last week, Faith, my middle daughter, had, had random fevers, no other symptoms at all, just random fevers like once a day for a few hours. And what's my mind, the spirit of slavery, say? Well, maybe there's something really wrong. Even though the doctor said there's nothing wrong, it's just a minor thing, no big, nothing to worry about. She's fine. She can go out in public. It's just her body's just doing something. What's my mind say? What's the spirit of slavery say? There's something terribly wrong. We need to go to, to CHOP in Philadelphia and figure out what's wrong. 
What does the spirit of adoption say? That there's nothing wrong. That the Father is good and He knows her and He protects her. That He loves her and I don't need to live or spend my nights in fear. I don't need to have all these questions. He did not put that in me. The enemy tries to bring that up. The spirit of slavery does that to me. And then verse 16, it says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You are a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit, one of His primary jobs is to constantly remind your spirit, you are a child of God. You are a child of God. He bears witness. That's why every time we look at the Holy Spirit and we say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying? He says, you're His. You're His son. You're His daughter. No other identity matters. Nothing else is real. You are His, and He loves you. That's the gospel. You are His sons. You are His daughters. Would you stand with me as we worship? As we worship, remember that we're not just worshiping a deity far away who's perfect, but a perfect deity who looks at us and sees everything good in us and calls us sons and daughters. Let's worship together.